Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Because it's time. It's, it's time for reparations. LGBTIQ rights are black rights. We have always been here. Black queers, we will always be here. It's like, it's a form of cultural imperialism. The only thing I have in common with this character is that she's black. This does not look like me or sound like me. I'm Gary Foley. I'm Francesca Ramsey. This is Amir Rahman. And you're listening to The Race Card. Welcome to The Race Card on Sin 90.7 FM. The time is... 3.05, and I'm Amina Ziyard, your host for this afternoon show. Before we begin, we'd like to do an acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the Kulin people as the owners of the land on which we meet, and we pay respect to the elders both past and present. This land was never ceded, and the process of colonization, occupation, incarceration, and genocide that began over two centuries ago continue to this day. You're listening to our one-hour show where we, ta- where we chat politics, current affairs, and pop culture with a little bit of a twist, as well as wrapping up the most thought-provoking issues in Australia for the week. Today, we discuss Australia's Muslim community's religious leaders coming under attack and the backlash from the Paris shooting, as well as... Um, what, are we, what else are we talking about, Ahmed? We're going to be talking about refugees um, and, I guess, how the Paris shootings and, I guess, the reactions to... Um, refugees, Syrian refugees in particular, and and what politicians are saying. But, you know, right now we've, we're have we going to be welcoming Hamishi Farah to our show. Oh, thanks. Hey. How's it sound? Uh, it, it, it sounds it sound pretty good. I just got to adjust your levels. Um, so, Hamishi, um, so you, you're an artist. Mm-hmm. And uh, I met you at, uh, oh, we met... Uh, a while ago, but I forgot <laughs> we met. <laughs> uh, but in fairness, you, you know, you were wearing a jumpsuit that day? Were you wearing a jumpsuit? A jumpsuit? What kind of jumpsuit? I'm what color? Sure. Probably like a, a... Blue. Blue? Oh, yeah, yeah. Kind of like scrubs sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was cool. uniform. Thank yeah. you. Thank yeah, you. You're welcome. I put, I put care. I put attention into what I'm wearing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Pretty stylish it's person. for myself. Yeah. It's for myself. Got yeah. to impress myself. Got to do that. Uh, but I, um, I remember you, you were talking a few weeks ago at... Still Nomad, Cinematic Nomadic, and mm-hmm. you got me thinking. And uh, for our listeners who didn't hear that talk, I guess, talk to us about your art and what kind of artist you are. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it just I, I was just kind of trying to talk through what I was dealing with right now. You know, there's always problems in making work. You know, that's kind of what it is. Like, you're a, a problem machine. Um, and, yeah, I was just sharing what I was going through right then. Uh, what, what particularly got you thinking? I guess um, so some of the things that I thought of was how you navigate your art in such a white-dominated industry and, mm. and how you, I guess, talked about that, so I guess. Yeah, well, it's hard. Like, I really I really struggle with that, you know. Um, I just started reading this book uh, to try and learn how to occupy space within, like, a white-dominated industry. I try and, like, tap some of that sacred white cultural knowledge. Um, maybe I can – I brought it with me. Can I read you a little quote from it from the yeah, first page? Yeah, definitely, definitely read it out. Um, what's the book called? It's called The Prince by Niccolo Machiavelli. Oh, The Prince. Okay, we'll we'll see what The Prince has to say. All right, so, um, what, on the first page, the first first thing it says pretty much is, um, 
I say then that in hereditary states accustomed to their prince's family, there are far fewer difficulties in maintaining one's rule than in new principalities, because it is enough merely not to neglect the institutions founded by one's ancestors and then to adapt policy to events. In this way, if the prince is reasonably uh, assiduous, he will always maintain his rule, unless some extraordinary and inordinate force deprive him of it. And if so deprived, whenever the usurper suffers a setback, he will reconquer. Interesting. That's a really deep quote. That is a, that, no, <laughs> that's that, the first that, page of his book. <laughs> that's an amazingly deep, but like, yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> it's cool. Does it get better? Oh, I mean, I'm I'm very, very, very... I just started it, you know. Uh, I only read, like... I don't read very much. Um, and I was kind of dealing with some stuff at this institution that I got a studio at, and it was just like, all right, well, I got I to gotta, I gotta get into that. I need some help. Definitely. So you spoke you spoke particularly about performing blackness and not wanting to perform blackness, mm. um, I guess, in those spaces and for those people. Can you elaborate on that? Well, yeah, I can. I think it's like... Um, the way the way I think about it, and especially like when you think about something like multiculturalism, you know, like you don't want to perform kind of uh, not even a caricature of like your identity or like how people want to impose your identity onto you, um, because I feel like that that kills it. You know that ki- that ki- that kills what you are. Then you're like uh, selling your lack of proximity to whiteness. You know what I mean? Yeah, I have this strange feeling. Well, not strange feeling, but more like observation. I feel like when a people are not particularly, um, how do we say, part of society, if they're not part of the social fabric, but they're still used as entertainment, that to me is dehumanization. Oh, do you totally. Do you feel that way? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah completely, completely. But um. Yeah, I mean, it depends on, like, who, you know, who becomes the arbiter of humanization. Right. You know, so who decides, you know, what, what, where humans are, like, what is this society that people may or may not be a part of while entertaining, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and if, like, that society becomes the arbiter of humanization, then obviously, like, a dominant white narrative becomes you know, the, 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 the pillar of humanity. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> Mike wasn't on for a moment. Yeah. Um, and I, and I guess, you know, performing blackness in a sense becomes political, doesn't it? Yeah. A hundred percent, you know, um, I, it, it definitely, but it becomes political either way. You know, it's one of those things. It's one of the situations where everything's political. Um, I think like one thing that, I've gotten really stuck with lately is I guess like how like a notion of like social progress is an identity is actually like endemic to capital and white supremacy. Like it can't exist without maybe the necessary ideological growth that comes out of it that maintains like a, um, you know, Eurocentric ideological dominance over the rest of the world. Um, so I guess it's really like measuring what kind of blackness I'm inhabiting and if I'm really just doing it for other people's moral growth or not, because it's really not my responsibility. And, and also the, this idea of authenticity, 
Um, and when you're not necessarily performing blackness in a certain way, in a certain caricature, are you then performing, in a sense, is your blackness um, authentic enough? Have you have you had those conversations with people talking to you about your art in that sense? Well, I mean, look, I think a lot of, like, uh, I guess, like, biracial or mulattoes, like, struggle with that. Um, like, really struggle with that. I think that's really difficult. Like, for me, you know, I was raised in you know, with a single white mother in a very white neighborhood, um, like really estranged from any like African or Somali culture. Um, so in a sense, like my blackness or my like identity of blackness was actually, you know, put on me by all the white people around me. You know, I was like socialized into that by white people. I was taught by them how to be black by their very like, limited understanding of blackness and i feel like in australia you know we get a really specific especially in terms of like what can be accepted as like non-indigenous blackness it's 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 filtered really 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 like tightly through the u.s and through media it's quite bizarre you know um yeah and i guess how has that influenced the way people have made your art um and and kind of like uh, influence you as an artist in a sense of trying to not necessarily allow people to dictate what is authentic in that sense? Um, they struggle with it, you know, because that's the thing. Like, I feel like, you know, there's with, with, you know, like this thing of understanding, not even like dictating whether it's authentic, but this notion of like understanding is really tied to like, you know, maybe like a bit of a trauma of Eros, you know, where like, there's there's something that's always evading being known and you want to you want to love it so much because of that you know it's kind of like you know like a little like a little chase like you know um oh, oh, oh are they gonna text back or not you know <laughs> um but then there comes a point where people just decide what it is they decide to define it themselves um have you gotten to that point where you decide what you believe is your own personal kind of blackness identity and, and how that, I guess, because a lot of these things, uh, uh, being a creative artist and, and mm. as a painter as yourself, a lot of this kind of, I know, a lot of visual things relate to what you put onto the page mm. and, and all that kind of stuff. Has this kind of identity crisis, if you will, um, influenced you in that sense? Yeah, well... It's totally influenced me and my practice, you know, and I feel like everyone needs frameworks, you know, you need, you need some sort of like bounds to help you see and understand something. And I think for me, it's just about like, mm, kind of figuring out what, what I can do for myself and then what I can do for other people and have like two separate frameworks, you know, because for myself, like I don't, I don't identify as Australian or Somali or, you know, any of these things. I, uh what would you, I guess, label yourself as an artist? A lot of people say, uh, I know a lot of people that would say, I'm just an artist. I'm not a, for example, a, a black poet. I'm yeah. not uh, a black writer. I am just a writer. Or do you identify with that, um, I guess, that pe putting that label onto it before the actual name? Do you know what I mean when I say that? Yeah, no, I don't, I don't want to prefix, like, maybe, um, like, uh, incredible or astounding artist would be good like <laughs> some adjectives you can use i don't know you pick your own <laughs> i don't know i just go date white guys which is really weird but like it's just like it's not necessarily a decision i made it's just something that just sort of came and like i've noticed a pattern i guess 
<laughs> um, do you think the pattern is, I don't know, like a good, a good thing for you? It's worked in your favour? Yeah, it's, it's worked in my favour, I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, are you fascinated with people from certain cultures more than others? Like, um, I like the Australian people here. They're really nice. Yeah, yeah, I like the Australian people. But maybe that's because they also actually migrated mostly from Europe. So, yeah, there's a bit of a connection already there. Not most people have, like, grandparents come from Europe and stuff. So they have something more yeah. to talk about. Do you have particular preferences of certain culture groups over others? Um, yeah, I think so, yeah. <laughs> what, what, would, what are they if you're feeling comfortable with? Uh, yeah, I feel a bit more comfortable around Europe, people from Europe or Aussie people, yeah. Or if they at least speak properly English or, yeah, if they look Asian but they, they are from Europe or their parents are European or Aussie, then it's a bit, a bit more comfortable. Important <laughs> thing we have to consider whenever we want to become a relationship first. Uh, I don't believe in religions, but anyway, I mean that the background of the religions is important because, for example, a Muslim cannot become friends with a Jewish. Okay, so I don't believe in religions, but anyway, but it has an effect. The other thing is, the, one of them is religion, the other one is the nationality. For example, an Iranian cannot... Uh, there are a lot of cases, but you know, it's rare, but you know... Actually, so the nationality, for example, an Iranian cannot uh, marry to, for example, I don't know, maybe Chinese. So they have some conflict. So I think two things that I wish. You're listening to Sin 90.7 FM, and we are the race card. Remember, you can get involved in all of the discussions by texting in on 0427-767-767 or tweet us at the race card. Now we're moving on into our segment, The Week That Was, where we highlight what's happened during the past week. This past week, Australian Muslim community's leading religious leader has come under scrutiny under his, after his comments following the Paris attack. But our array of sensationalization... Oh my goodness, Ahmed, help me out here. Oh, no, uh, uh, is an array of sensationalization... Uh, no, <laughs> so now it's got me as well. No, um, has a ray of sensationalization... Oh, see, now, now we just forget about... After an array of sensationalism. Sensationalism! That's it, sensationalism. Um, yeah, in the reporting, has there been sensationalism in the reporting? Yeah, well, um, we'll just have a listen. The Grand Mufti Dr. Ibrahim Abu Muhammad has courted controversy in recent days with his comments after the Paris attack, where he referenced Islamophobia as one of the motivators of terror. Politicians and media personalities alike have come out in criticism for the Grand Mufti. Jackie Lambie in particular has said that the Grand Mufti should be fitted with a monitoring bracelet. And then you had the Grand Mufti out there the other day that hasn't directly condemned the attacks. I mean, he's not helping the situation either. So that's another problem that we have. So maybe the first person that should have an electronic device put on them is a bloody Grand Mufti. Well, okay, I don't know that putting an electronic in, in device on the Grand Mufti is going to achieve anything, but just to go back to the well, issue with refugees... Well, I'll be able to, we'll to monitor monitoring what is going on and where they're going. I spoke to Guardian reporter Michael Safi, who broke down the comments from the Grand Mufti in an article debunking some of the ideas of Dr. Ibrahim. The Grand Mufti put out a couple of statements over the weekend after the you know, horrendous attack in Paris on Friday. Um, he, you know, it, it seemed to me that the comments became uh, very controversial. Um, and look, I think that there was, you know, probably there was like no one is above criticism, and there was a lot of fair criticism that was aired. Of, of the approach that the, the Mufti's office and, uh, took. However, I thought by, particularly by sort of Monday and Tuesday, 
the sort of criticism he was getting began to really, you know, defy kind of belief to me and, and seemed to sort of really skew away from the reality of what he had said. And so I, I wanted to write a piece that basically showed people that the way, essentially, um, all these different um, media outlets were kind of just sort of creating a bit of a caricature out of the man and making all these claims that, like, he hadn't talked about the, the victims of the, of the attacks in Paris, that it wasn't clear whose side he was on, that, you know, that, that there were all of these questions about him and that he was in some way a kind of nefarious figure, when the reality is, is completely the opposite. He has unequivocally um, said that, that, you know, the things that groups such as ISIS do are, are horrible and, and are in no way reflective of his religion or of the community, of, of Muslim communities in Australia. You talked about the caricature that they've kind of painted of him, um, referencing the article, uh, the Daily Telegraph's um, front page of him kind of in this monkey see, monkey do kind of imagery. And you, and you mentioned there's been a long time since that kind of imagery from people from the Middle East and, and Africa um, portrayed as monkeys. Well, look, it just struck me as being, you know, being a kind of, quite an insensitive, insensitive way to portray somebody. I mean, I, I put that comment in there as kind of a lighter one. So I thought, I think when, you, when you're confronted with, you know, this level of, of, you know, let's call it what it is, sort of ignorance, and it's kind of a light strain of bigotry, you have to sort of laugh because it's not worth getting worked up about. Um, I think, um, you know, and I, I think the problem with that was that, um, you know, for a long time, um, people of Middle Eastern and, and African origin have been compared to, to monkeys, compared to sort of apes, and that's a sort of very common racist trope. And I, I'm, I was surprised that nobody at, at that paper, um, you know, picked up on the fact that they could be straying into sort of dangerous territory here. Or, you know, perhaps they did and, and sort of didn't, didn't care. But, but either way, I thought it was... Um, Look, it was, it was a surprise, and I thought, you know, I, I don't think anyone meant anything by it, but I think you have to just be a little bit more kind of sensitive about these things. You talk about the criticism, and no one being above criticism, but some of the things that have been said about the Grand Mufti, particularly from people like Jackie Lambie um, and, and the like, why do you think there's this intense criticism sparking uh, against the Grand Mufti for, for saying what he said? Well, look, I think the Grand Mufti, sort of in, in situations like this, the Grand Mufti becomes a symbol of something much bigger. So, I mean, I don't think Jackie Lambie has actually sat down and read the Mufti's statements. And, and, you know, when she says that he should wear an ankle bracelet, I don't think she's talking about the man himself. I think she, she's sort of talking about what he represents in her view, which is this kind of dark force, which is something alien to her, which is something that she's quite afraid of. And so she's able to make these statements that we understand to be completely ludicrous and offensive because her, she's talking about sort of her own fears towards Islam more broadly. And I think that's why we see these sorts of overreactions and this language that I think would be unacceptable that we use um, to refer to kind of anybody else. But because it's a sort of a major Muslim figure um, days after, you know, these sort of horrendous attacks in Paris, that she sort of feels that she can, she can get away with it or that it might touch a nerve among people who are feeling, you know, perhaps understandably scared and unsettled and afraid. As a journalist, um, you're covering um, a lot of general news as well as politics, um, and, and particularly, uh, I guess, Islam, Islam and extremism has become a prominent topic in the media. Do you think, whereas other cases of racism can be more clear and, and more, I guess, taboo subjects to, to particularly say, I don't know, uh, as you said before, um, relating monkeys and African and, and Middle Eastern uh, people wouldn't, wouldn't, would 
primarily not be something media outlets choose to do, do you feel like there is a more openness to be Islamophobic in the media? I, th I think there is. I think there is. And I think it's because um, it's given, you know, a lot less so now than a few months ago, but it's given kind of official cover. I mean, you know, you can pick up the Herald Sun and you see Andrew Bolt say things like, we should ban Muslim immigration. Um, you know, you, you hear political leaders um, and sort of cultural leaders make similar statements. And so it kind of, I think the way it works is it gives, you know, there'll always be these, um, you know, sort of hateful elements in our society. And I think uh, when they perceive that they're being given kind of official cover, then they're a bit more open um, about, about their views. And I think we see that, for example, in the US, where they're having their presidential uh, primary elections at the moment. Um, and we see the fact that um, um, Donald Trump is so open about sort of slandering um, Hispanic immigrants. And that allows, that allows sort of far-right groups in the U.S. to feel more confident about voicing those views. I think there's a sort of connection there between what our, what our leaders say and what our media reflects and then the sort of views that bubble up from the community. We're going to head to a quick music break. Don't forget to get involved in all the discussions by texting in on 0427-767-767 or tweet us at The Race Card. This one is DAM's Who You Are. Do you, um, have you heard of the term white privilege? White privilege? No, not really. What do you think it means? I wouldn't even know, no. What's Haven't got a clue. Don't know. Seriously. Privilege means being able to uh, go where you want without fear of being attacked um, or like persecuted for how you look. Yeah. Hey. Alright, so, no, five seconds. Five seconds, good for it. Alright, so. What does the term white privilege mean to you? Yeah. What does what? White privilege. Uh, there is not such a thing, man. Not for me. Not for you? No, man, we're all the same. That's, uh, all, we, blood is red, we're all the same. All brothers. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what does the term white privilege mean to you? Uh, well, privilege for white people, I guess? Yeah, so... Is this like racism kind of stuff? Oh, <laughs> uh, I guess Centrelink. White privilege, I guess, is the kind of um, specialty or privileges that the white people have here. I mean, we are talking about the local white Australian. They're having, you know, having access to welfare, housing, and everything that is um, being state provided. I assume. What does the term white privilege mean to you? Um, wow, that's a that's a pretty hard-hitting question. Um, I suppose white privilege is kind of a monopoly of power and ideas when it comes to things like business, politics, government, media... Uh, even things like the police and the military, dominated by people who all have uh, a collective set of assumptions that never get tested by the people around them. You're listening to Sin 90.7 FM, and we are the race card. Remember, you can get involved in all of the discussions by texting in on 0427 767-767 or tweet us at the race card. And we're moving on 
to our next segment. Segment This week, Alicia Garza, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, delivered a talk in Melbourne. We have Aslan Petra, who attended the conference. Let's just get him on. Hello. Hey, hi, Aslan. Welcome to the race card. Um, thanks hi. for having me. That's all right. So, Aslan, tell me, how was, how was the conference overall? How was the, um, how was the talk? Uh, it was actually my first time attending the conference. Uh, I never knew about it before. I just managed to stumble upon some information saying that Alicia Garza from Black Lives Matters was coming over. So, I tried as much as I can try to get in, and I, and I did at the last minute. Right. And who, what was spoken about and who the who was the audience? Because I think a lot of people of color did not know about this. Yeah. So like I said, I mean, it's a digital organizing or campaigning conference. And they've been actually been doing it since 2012. And uh, from, you know, from the from the term itself, digital campaigning, it's, it's been using like social media, using online content to kind of organize and campaign for whatever cause that you have. And from what I noticed, yeah, it seems it seems that the target audience is somewhat limited. It seems to me like um, people who are digital savvy or social media savvy, people that who are you know upper upper class, middle class, white audience maybe, yeah. Right. And can you talk to me a little bit about the pricing of the tickets um, as a potential stratifying issue? Because I think maybe that's why. A lot of anti-racist activists were kind of cut off from that. Um, yeah, I think when I, I was kind of surprised about how expensive it was. I think for for non-profit, it was about like two hundred fifty, and for like profit uh, or any corporate organization, it'll be like three fifty. But they actually said that they were they would also give scholarships to people. Um, which would reduce the price to like 115, I think. But I don't know. I mean, I don't know how much scholarships they were giving out, they were handing out. But uh, and there's certain criteria behind that as well. But yeah, it just seems kind of like a bit crazy. You know, you could have staggered the price a little bit, or because it's basically a two-day conference and they have different sessions and different keynote addresses. They could have priced like according to the events, maybe, or the breakout session. I don't know. But maybe that's something that you need to consider over. Hey, Aslan, so I miss you here. Um, so what you're saying is they, they brought out Black Lives Matter more so as an enterprise or, like, branding strategy rather than as a movement? I think maybe, yeah, I mean, be like, you know, if you're going to be cynical about it, maybe it does seem like that because I would assume that you should try to connect with like the different movements around or different organizations we did in Australia, you know. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Uh, especially like people of color or indigenous issues. But it just seems like the targeting, of, you know, I, I don't know whether it's calculated that they only want a certain type of people to come, but 
it just seems that without thinking it through, they only kind of managed to only get a certain type of audience to, to some extent. Do you think it's um, an issue of maybe uh, economizing marginality or economizing a movement and the agency that that garners? Uh, I don't know. I mean, like, if you, if I, I mean, from briefly from what I saw from their the website, uh, maybe they're just not good organizing it. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry to say, I don't know. It doesn't seem like, you know, I don't, they're not like uh, the Wheeler Center, for example, where you can see a lot of uh, promo. This one, like, I never, like I said, I never even knew about the organization before this. You got some more tea on the Wheeler Center? Sorry? You got some more tea uh, on the, the World Center? The organizing, the organizer, organizers of the, of the conference, which is Australian Progress. Right. And I think it's pretty telling that, you know, they're, they say they're technologically savvy or whatever, but they don't seem to have a very good hold with marketing. Or they're not very yeah. good with marketing to people of color for sure, because I'm pretty sure if they wanted to connect to organizations, they would probably contact, you know, a whole lot of organizations in Australia dedicated to people of color, and uh, that didn't happen. Yeah, sure. And whether or not they calculated it, I think that's just what happened. That's just the impact, which doesn't look very good. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, like, that's what that's what I noticed. I mean, like, I when I found out about uh, Alicia Garza coming, I just kind of, like, uh, kind of reached out to my other contacts, especially for my um, African and African Australian youth. Uh, and none of them actually knew that she was coming. So that's, for me, I think that's kind of a bad form. Oh, yeah, um, sure. Yeah. Right. Uh, well, thank you so much for talking to us, Aslan. Yep. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Okay. All right, bye. See ya. Bye. Aslan, Petra, thank you for coming on the show. And I guess now we're going to be moving on. And in the wake of the Paris attacks, there's been... A backlash to members of the Muslim community. CNN interviewed um, recently Yasser Lawati, a uh, a civil rights um, uh, community organizer in France for the Muslim community, and uh, they asked him a few questions about how the Muslim community didn't know about the terror attack that happened in Paris. knew what these guys were up to. Well, Yasser, if your camp is the French camp, why is it that no one within the Muslim community there in France knew what these guys were up to? Because it seems to me that this was a pretty big plan. Surely someone beyond the seven guys who were being killed over the last 48 hours would have to have known something, and that was probably within the Muslim community, but yet no one said anything. Sir, the Muslim community has nothing to do with these guys. Nothing. We cannot justify ourselves for the actions of someone who just you know, claims to be Muslim. The, uh, our you know, secret services knew about these guys, and again, just like during the January attacks, it turned out they were all you know, on a blacklist somewhere, somehow, in, on, on a desk. So right now, we can't take responsibility for anything. Right now, what these terrorists are blaming us for is, is belonging to the, the, to, to the French nation. And the sure. Well, that was a bit strange. Um, why would a civil rights community organizer, or any Muslim for that matter, need to be tasked to find out what other members of their community are doing? What are these people that are terror suspects? Um, 
I guess, why do you think that line of questioning happened, uh, Amina? Well, I think there's a general um, trend to communalize people. So when people are marginalized, sorry, not just anyone, just not any people get communalized. It's people who are marginalized. So we have to answer for, you know, the the misgivings of others, which doesn't make sense because, you know, off air, I was just telling to Hamishi, like, do we have telepathy? Like, is this like a Muslim secret? Like, we can read each other's minds? No, we can't. I don't know what you're thinking right now. I don't know what the next person to down the block's thinking right now. Even if they're Muslim, I for sure cannot foresee what's happening. Well, you know, I know what other Muslims are thinking all the time. Like, you know, that you know the prayer telepathy. No one, no, no, just me. No. <laughs> <laughs> you're on your own, Ahmed. <laughs> But the, the, the interview continued, and uh, it went something a bit more like this. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, Yasser, but what is the responsibility within the Muslim community to identify what is happening within their own ranks when it comes to people who are obviously training and preparing to carry out mass murder? No, 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 sir, no, no, no. They, they, they were not from our ranks. If they were trained, they were trained abroad. And what these terrorists are blaming our country for is for its failed foreign policy. But of course, they will use people who are falling in the trap of social insecurity and, of course, being cast aside from the rest of French society. So we cannot accept the idea that these people are from us. They are not. They are just the byproduct of our societies, exporting their wars abroad and expecting no repercussion back home. That was uh, Lawati talking about exporting wars abroad and the repercussions that that may have. Um, I guess when we talk about issues of terrorism and 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 when we talk about deradicalization of of people and and all those kinds of things, do we not see the socio political issues within what's happening right now? Specifically, I guess just the most recent events, Paris. Is that an open question? Okay. Oh, uh, well, you can you can answer. It's, <laughs> it's out for anyone. Right. Um. I well, I'm gonna I'm gonna quote Aaron Kundani, who is an academic from the University of Cambridge who's now, I think, in the U.S., but he basically says violence is interactive. So when we talk about foreign policy, domestic policy, obviously that translates to, you know, what happens, um, whatever happens overseas comes back home. Um, but also having said that, when people talk about, oh, we should have known about what was happening, it's like, we don't know these people, firstly. Uh, we don't know we don't know every single person who is Muslim. We don't know all that stuff. There's so many different communities, different ethnicities, different languages on top of that, different, different generations. But at the same time, the people who fall through the cracks are the ones who, you know, they get attracted to these kind of extremist ideals. And one way to do that is to not marginalize them. Yeah, also I think like the thing you said about over-localization, that's it. Like when this guy is talking about the Muslim community, what picture do you think he has in his head? You know what I mean? Like... The, I think like the issue is it's, it's just the issue of proximity, you know. He's just seeing everything that has a certain like type of proximity to him as like all together and like aggregating it all. Exactly, and I think you know again coming back to this idea when people say Islam's not a race, so therefore it's not racism. Well, guess what? I'm pretty sure when you say Muslims, you are not talking about white people. For a fact. I mean, not to say there are no white Muslims. I'm just saying that when you think of Muslim, you racialize it as a person of color. Generally, black and brown people. And also, I guess the thing when you talk about there isn't one Muslim community, like there is, there is literally no one Muslim community. There are Muslim, there are mosques separated on ethnic lines, um, on on uh, different sects, Sunni, Shia, um, Sufi, all these types of things. So many different types of Muslim. 
and I guess um, the end of that interview left a bit of a sour taste in my mouth. Um, and uh, yeah, here it is. Yeah, so thank you for being with us. This is a very complicated issue, and unfortunately, we didn't really have enough time to get into it. But yes, Luati, there, uh, spokesman for the Collective Against Islamophobia in France. You know, I'm yet to hear, uh, you know, the condemnation from the Muslim community on this. But I mean, we'll I, you know, it. again, the point he's making is it's not our fault. But the fact of the matter is when these things happen, the finger of blame is pointed at the Muslim community. And so you have to be preemptive. It's coming from the community. You've got, to, you've got to take a standard. The word responsibility comes yeah, to mind. It just comes to mind. You... Yeah, but the word responsibility, it just comes to mind. Yes, responsibility. And when I hear, when I heard that, I guess, um, I thought, were they patronizing and, and, and I guess kind of like talking down and infantilizing people like us or who they're talking to? And, and, and I guess, again, why are Muslims continually being asked to, uh, to take responsibility? I, uh, I feel like maybe they're just trying to export the phenomenon of white guilt to, uh, other marginalities. That's, that's a really good point. You yeah. Know. Like, that's the thing, like, just because, like, you know, white supremacy is relatively centralized, it doesn't make, like, <laughs> everything else just as centralized. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, it feels terrible because, you know, par some of the people who were victims in the Paris shooting were actually Muslim people. And then to ask, you know, the same people, oh, why aren't you condemning this? Well, of course we condemn it. We can, how many Facebook statuses did I read through, like, in my news feed over the past, you know, week or so? It's incredible how people still think that we're not loud enough. But you know what? I think I've kind of accepted. Maybe we won't be loud enough. Maybe that, this is just, you know, a way to, a way to sort of make you feel not enough. <laughs> what do you think, Ahmed? I, I guess even the idea of um, constant uh, apologizing just, I, I guess it also kind of tries to create this dichotomy of Muslim, the good Muslim that was always going to apologize of, of acts of violence and, and come in, come in the, uh, I guess, come there for the, for the white, fragile, fragile um, well-meaning uh, person who wants, you know, they just, they just want the world to be peaceful and, and everyone to be civilized and, and that sort of thing. And, and that's what I, that's the kind of, uh, I guess, image that I get in the mind. And the person that doesn't. Like, um, respectability yeah, politics? Yeah, it's respectability politics. It's just respectability politics all over. And the person that doesn't apologize is the extremist. He's the person that you have to think twice about. You have to look twice about. You know what I mean? And, and that just creates division. And, you know, the whole idea of divide and conquer kind of thing just right. comes to mind. As a as a mixed race person, I'm going to tap into my white half and apologize for that. Uh, report <laughs> you know, he, he was he was also Australian, so hey, <laughs> hey. Well, people's idea of what merit is is sort of um, it's influenced by the sort of their the beliefs that they've sort of accumulated or formed during their life. So, for example, you now if we were talking like 50 years ago or longer, people might say. Um, might assume that women are less capable of doing a certain job, so then they'd give a man a job on them on their merit. Their idea of merit has been influenced by their their context and their their sort of upbringing. So having like I so I do reckon the quota system is a good thing. Having said that, probably would be more effective and fairer to spend time and money combating things that stop people getting into those positions like people from minorities or whatever um i mean i think that there's always this kind of preference for 
a certain race or a certain gender, but I think that slowly it's getting better. But I mean, I think it's, you're right, it's invisible. And I think that people are kind of, uh, yeah, there is a preference for, I don't know, say, white males in a workforce or in parliament or something. Do you think uh, a quota system can maybe help in terms of making a balance with, as you said, make them more equal? Yeah, I guess so, but I, I don't really think that like a quota system should be necessary. I feel like people should just think, okay, this is like right, we need to have an equal representation of people in a workforce or or something like that. It's just it should just be common sense, but obviously it's not. So if I guess if there's that system So yes, um I think quota systems are extremely important, but the approach towards them the delivery towards say, like achieving the quotas that we want can be problematic as well, in which people from groups that are not traditionally represented within state organizations can feel tokenistic at times and feel like they're not safe and is not as tend to not be as accessible as we think of them to be. Whereas like we have already done this much for you, so the rest is up to you when they're not accustomed to that. Like, these are not skills that we've been prepped with. These are not expectations that we have had of ourselves because traditionally we have not been in these areas. And when you look at it that way, the quota systems are not fulfilling their intended function. Of course, this does not mean that you need to stop looking for people within said quota. This just means that this is a minimum that you must achieve. We are the race card on Sin 90.7 FM, moving on to our last segment of the show, which is the feature. Recently, Shakira Hussain, a writer and academic on multiculturalism and Muslim studies at the University of Melbourne, penned a piece titled Breed Rich White Women of Australia for Crikey, an online publication. The article juxtaposes Australia's rhetoric of the baby drought and support and supporting its aging population against its restricted migration policies, particularly of asylum seekers arriving by boat and Muslims. This is reflective reflective of various politicians from here and overseas. I think we've got some graphs. We must balance safety against just being a humanitarian. For instance, you know, if there's a, a rabbit dog running around in your neighborhood probably not going to assume something good about that dog, and you're probably going to put your children out of the way. doesn't mean that you hate all dogs by any stretch of the imagination, but you're putting your intellect into motion, and you're thinking, how do I protect my children? At the same time, I love dogs, and I'm going to call the Humane Society, and hopefully they can come take this dog away and create a safe environment once again. By the same token, we have to have in place screening mechanisms that allow us to determine who the mad dogs are, quite frankly. Who are the people who want to come in here and hurt us and want to destroy us? Yeah, who are those people, those rabid dogs? Syrian refugees, comparing Syrian refugees to rabid dogs, you know, it just sounds very, very similar to, to times gone by when... Right. I think it harks back to so many different waves. It harks back to things like the yellow peril. 
you know, they're going to come, they're going to take our resources, they're going to, like, populate our land and everything. Um, in the same way, um, you know, white Australia policy was also constructed under those same notions. We, ha- we have to save the, the white race. Um, anything else that comes to your mind? Well, you know, just thinking back, the Holocaust and how people were, were tagged, when people were ha- basically tattooed numbers and, and things like that, and... Someone particularly uh, famous and someone who's a who's striving to be the next president of the United States, the free world, if you didn't know, the free <laughs> world. Um, Donald Trump said maybe there should be Muslim ID. There should be a lot of systems beyond database. I mean, we should have a lot of systems. And today you can do it. But right now we have to have a border. We have to have strength. We have to have a wall. And we cannot let what's happening to this country happen so in the world. Your White House like oh, I would certainly implement that. Absolutely. What do you think the effect of that would be? How would that work? It would stop people from coming in illegally. We have to stop people from coming in to our country illegally. For Muslims specifically, how do you actually get them registered in your data? It would be just good management. What you have to do is good management procedures. And we can do that. It's nice. And do, you, do you go to mosques and sign these people up? And Different places. You sign them up at different, but it's all about management. Our country has no management. Who's is that? Would they have to legally be in this database? Would they, be there they have to be. They have to be. Let me just tell you that the key is people can come to the country, but they have to come in legally. Thank you very much. They have to come in legally, and when they do, they should be tagged. IDs, Muslim IDs, everyone. Good management. <laughs> no, great. Great management. Mm, the key, the key to a sustainable humanity is uh, administration. Right. He no, he's a businessman. You know, he's made all those billions. Yeah. Right, and I think it's really telling when they keep saying they have to come in legally. You know, not illegally. It's it's the same connotation as non-human. You know, as if to say the only way they can be human is if they come here legally. And of course, even that said, it's not enough. You need to uh, you need to have some ID. You need to have some good management. <laughs> Great management. Right. And, you know, looking at, you know, Shakira Hussain's recent article, hearing all these diatribe from various politicians, there seems to be an implied hierarchy of wanted and desired bodies and beings when, re- when it's regards to um, Australia's detaining of asylum seekers and pressure for locals to bolster the birth rate. Do you think it can be reduced to that sentiment? Yeah, no, I I do, um, and only I guess in refu- when, we, when talking about refugees and asylum seekers, um, just before we were talking about Paris attack, uh, I, I remember reading an article this week where um, the BBC's foreign editor John Simpson had this scathing kind of like um, I guess scathing remarks to the media and how they reported the the, the um, Paris attack, saying we have selective, basically in a sense, saying that we have selective humanity. We pick and choose which stories are important. He's in. He says, "I'm in. I'm in uh, the Middle East every day. I'm in. I'm, I'm in Iraq. I'm in Afghanistan, and people die in the dozens daily, and we don't see any reporting yeah, of that." Sure. I feel like the issue with that is that, like, <clears throat> to these people, like, like, even the notion of humanity is dog whistling to like whiteness and to like the concerns of white humanity, you know, which, I mean, that's, like, disastrously dangerous, you know? Like, even talking about, you know, um, aliens. Um, right. It's, like, it seems like preserving a really particular type of, like, uh, nation's identity. And when a culture is um, 
predicated on the absorption of <clears throat> the cultural production of other people, it becomes really difficult to actually keep a, 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 a white identity, you know, and that's that's the delicate balance of, like, a hegemony. Right. Like. And also, you know, different people uh, died during the Paris attack, but the way how people frame all these attacks, and, you know, as we said, attacks happen everywhere. They atta- I mean, so many people are dying in the third world, but no one bats an eye. Um, but when we talk about, for example, Paris, we talk about Paris as a city. When we, po- when we talk about Beirut, we talk about it as a war zone. So it's almost as if they should be expected to die, you know? Like, it's, it's kind of like, it's their collateral damage. That's, that's how they're referred to, you know? One of the, one of the ways they're referred to in a dehumanizing way, you could say. Um, which I guess is also tied in with whose lives are precious and whose lives are disposable as well. Do you think this manifests in other areas of the Australian system? Oh, definitely. Just like, in, in the context that we're talking about refugees and asylum seekers, just look at Nauru and Manus Island. Look at how, Journalists are not even allowed to go there and report on these issues. You have to spend X amounts of money, exorbitant fees to come. And, and it's it, it just people are dying. A few weeks ago, um, Abiyan couldn't even have a – just just have a simple abortion after being – after having horrible things done to her. She can't even have a simple abortion. And and, and that's just like an everyday for, for refugees and asylum seekers who, who just want to come to Australia to seek asylum, to have – you know, just be safe. Just a simple thing, and simple thing, I guess, in humanity, in saying that every single person has the right to feel safe. I think I feel like like the the the, the real like gaslighting of all of this is like recentering Australia as a safe place, a place that you want to come to. While you know we spend so much time critiquing all of this, where I feel like we're you know resituating like this. Freeness of Australia, we're recentering like uh, this, like desire or like hope for it to be a productive thing that represents us, where it never will be. Oh, no, definitely won't be. But I guess in a sense, is um, those people don't have a choice. Those people don't have um, don't have agency or social mobility to, to actually decide whether it's safe or not to come to Australia. It, it, it's literally um, live or die in that situation. You're, mm. you're on a boat. Um, your home that where you want to be is unsafe at this moment, mm. and that is because of Western imper- uh, imperialism and intervention and, and all these issues that are going on and all these social political um, issues of, of terrorism and this war on terror. And you're left in a situation where I go to the West, where I'll be racialized, vilified, and to an extent dehumanized, or I stay where I am and potentially die. But what I'm saying is. Why Why do we keep recentering and critiquing it? Is it the only choice we have to have agency within this model? And is that our role as marginalised peoples within this model? Hmm. I'm going to interject, if that's okay. Um, so basically, I feel like the Western world, if we, can, if we can call it that way, it's predicated on stability. And sometimes that stability comes at the cost of other nations and other people's stability. So, for example, um, when the Paris attacks happens or when the 7-7 bombing happened in London, you know, it's we're shaken because that stability is, you know, is shattered. Um, that that facade of, of stability, even if it comes at the expense of so many people of color. So I think that's what differentiates the third world and the Western world. 
And I think I kind of went off track. But I think as marginalized people, I think what we should do is kind of accept that in the Western world, we are participating in the system, technically, like us being in the Western world, which is partaking in the war on terror, for example, we're kind of like indirectly participating in the system, not because of we want to, it's just part of how it's structured. And how we can go about it is probably to keep protesting and to keep in our minds, keep the, keep the ideas alive. And but I guess my question yeah. for that is, isn't peaceful protest just constructive criticism for hegemony to make it more powerful mm. and more dominant? I guess the, the question is to, I guess, decolonize the idea of protesting and, and to kind of like, even if people, the, these ideas of, of raging protesters is, is kind of like um, how people see people in the street, even though they're pro- peacefully protesting. And that is that a lot of times, you know, Sometimes violence is necessary in, in these in, in these situations when people don't necessarily have a choice. There is no there's no chance to do something peacefully to sign a petition for everyone to sign a petition and say, "Hey, we're going to change this." Because at the moment, if you hear the rhetoric from people in, in power, people with any agency, it isn't to to listen to people on the streets, even though through peaceful office. And that's exactly it. Every time you sign a petition, you're declaring your faith in the, you know, ultimate egalitarian underlying of the nation state, which is like, I mean, I feel like that's what the, the gaslighting is. Right. And uh, I guess this is a uh, a really good place to end it, even though there could be a discussion here for days, mounting on days. But um, before we do go, I guess, um, let's let's tell listeners where they can find us offline, uh, online, I guess. Um, you can find... Me at Ahmed Yusuf 10, the number 10. Uh, but, but Hamishi, where can they find you? First of all, I want to give a shout out to the party within. Um, I want to uh, free goo up. Uh, <laughs> Instagram at uh, Hot Aussie Boy. And uh, my Twitter is Hamishi with an S at the end. Hamishis. And you can also find the, the podcast on Twitter at The Race Card, as well as finding us on iTunes, Mixcloud. And on Facebook as well by searching Racecard and on Facebook you can find us Facebook.com forward slash Racecard show and that's our show for this week. Uh, we'll be back next week hopefully. Thank you, Thank God. Thank you for Bye. listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.